0: Welcome to the Fraudology Podcast, where every week we will dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of a veteran fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. I've focused my life and career on online fraud prevention for over 15 years, working with hundreds of the most well-known e-commerce companies to help them prevent payment fraud and abuse. One of my favorite things about getting to work with a lot of different companies and just some really incredibly smart people all across the industry that are all focused on different things. Some are great investigators, some are great at analytics, others are great at product, Uh, just various different ways. They all have different ways of looking at fraud, and I enjoy learning from that. And my guest for today's interview is no exception to that. I've had the chance to work with Uri Arad in his position, his current position as co-founder of Identic for almost two years, and I'm just constantly humbled by his approach and his way of thinking towards solving fraud issues via technology. Uh, he, Prior to this, he was the chief technologist at PayPal out of Tel Aviv, as well as he spent some time in the US. And you'll hear that pretty quickly on in the interview. He Uh, provides just one example of something that he can talk about publicly that he spearheaded at PayPal as far as the way they changed their approach using technology to identify fraud. And it's just one of the many reasons why I really admire his perspective and uh, just how he thinks about things differently. And that is a big part of why I do this podcast is I love to interview people that maybe you don't know, because they aren't usually on the stages, or they aren't as extroverted as I am, or some other people are, but that they have equally amount, if not more to contribute to uh, how we all learn about this space and solving problems. I will say that (laughs) I try really hard to be vendor agnostic on this podcast, and I think I do a pretty good job of it, but I really have a hard time containing my excitement for Identic and the Merchant Collaboration data network that they've created. Uh, So you will probably hear me fangirling a little bit more than ever uh, on this. And you probably may think like, wow, she's really over complimentary to these guys, but I have to say they're the best company I've ever worked with as a consultant. Um, Definitely, you know, my top few, but probably the best Um, from their ethics to their morals to that. They really walk the walk and they are just so smart and on the cutting edge. And so there are reasons why I'm gushing. It's not like I just met them and I'm naive. Um, but this is not meant as a you know sales commercial or anything like that. I think it is really important for people to know what new technology is out there that maybe, you know, when you're just focused on your domain of fraud prevention, you don't have time to learn about. But this is not a sales pitch for them. It's it certainly um, if you want to learn more about them, you absolutely can. And I'm happy to make any introductions if that's you know easier for you. But. I just wanted to kind of give a bit of a caveat that I know I was not as agnostic as I typically am, but I don't, I also don't really see Identic as a vendor because they are essentially just providing the technology to allow merchants to work with each other. And that's the piece that I obviously gravitated towards very quickly. So with that, I am really excited for you all to get to know Uri Arad a little bit better. I'm certainly glad that I know him. I've been wanting him to come on this podcast for quite some time, and I'm looking forward to hearing what you think. Uri, it's so great to see you, even if it's just virtually. Thanks so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you for having me, Chris. It's been a a pleasure knowing and working with you for so many years, and it's really my pleasure being part of this uh, and being a guest on your uh, podcast.
0: Uh, Likewise. Absolutely, likewise. I think, you know, a lot of people don't, may not know who you are because you've been behind the scenes, but as we know, some of the smartest people in the world are behind the scenes. So I would love, uh, and you really are responsible for a lot of incredible fraud technology and tactics and, and counter fraud methods that impact a lot of companies. So I would love for you to share how you got started in online fraud prevention and kind of what that career path and journey has looked like.
1: Wow, that takes me uh, some time back. <laughs> but the, the, to be truly honest, I got into fraud, me- fraud prevention and fraud management almost by mistake. I was actually, you know, I'm originally from Israel. I moved to the States, spent many, many years in, in the U.S. and then moved back to Israel. And when they moved back to Israel, I was thinking about okay what you know I need to find a new job what what do I want to do and actually had a friend that made an introduction between me and the person who was running the Israeli Center of Excellence for PayPal in Israel and they were looking for a chief technologist someone that has experience with you know technology and algorithms and can you know help them look at you know, and develop some new capabilities in fraud prevention. And this is really how I got into fraud. And I remember that, you know, even during the, the interview process, you know, people would ask me a lot of very, you know, interesting questions that really were very, very intriguing, almost sounded like, you know, solving riddles. And this is how I really got into, into the, this domain of fraud and risk management. And to be honest, once I got into it, you know, you just get the bug and, and, and you know, the more you you learn, the more you understand about this world, the more exciting it is. So, you know, I've been uh, fortunate enough to join, to join a, a team of really excellent individuals at PayPal and then grow with your organization and grow with the team in Israel through the years and, you know, manage a group of, you know, many, many you know data scientists and risk analysts and and product managers and building really some very
0: very exciting solutions together with them Absolutely, and I am aware of some of them. I know when I interviewed Monica Sharp, who previously worked for Apple, she joked that she kind of felt like when she left, she felt like she'd left the witness protection program because when she was there, there was just so much she couldn't talk about because of shareholders and you know secrecy that needs to happen for innovation and and you know competitive advantage and all the other things and so I know that PayPal is in that world with kind of the top probably 20 companies in tech are are very, a lot more closely guarded and probably make you sign away your firstborn. I don't know. I haven't seen those contracts. If you say anything out of context, but I say all that to kind of preface it for listeners to know why I'm wording this question this way. Are there any initiatives and or issues that you and your team accomplished or solved that you can talk about in fraud prevention?
1: Yeah, actually, there are a few that we have already shared and, you know, I'm happy and I'm proud also to talk about them uh, again, because I think there's some unique approaches to fraud prevention that, you know, was developed by the team and that we were able to later on. I think some of them have become almost now quite common, but I think that when we started doing them, they were quite innovative. So I think the first thing that was unique, and this is really, you know, i I cannot take full credit for that. I think that's uh, a lot of what the the good people at Fraud Science have developed even before that company was acquired by by PayPal was the whole concept of of looking for the good or sort of like the the concept of positive verification and doing positive verification based on what we refer to as story-based risk analysis. And the idea was really about when you see something is sort of being trained to when you see you know, some, some activity and that activity could be, you know, could be a transaction, it could be an account that has been created, being able to ask yourself some the question of saying, okay, given what I see. Is there a good story that I, and that explains why the user behaves in the way that I see them behave, no matter how awkward that behavior might be? And then what would also be the fraudulent story? And then instead of just saying, oh, you know what? I see something that doesn't look, that looks different. Try to evaluate and put those two stories, one next to the other. And then try to ask yourself, which of these stories is more plausible? And then if you're not able to to answer that, then ask yourself the next question. The next section would be, what question can, can I ask that will allow me to tell those two stories apart? And if you can come up with a question, then you know what is the next step you need to do. So that was this approach is really like a whole new way of looking at uh, suspicious activity, because there's a lot of times that people would do something suspicious. You know, this is actually funny. I just made a purchase yesterday for, let's say, uh, you know, a relatively higher amount uh purchase. And when I checked out, you know, of course, I got like a, like a 3DS challenge. And, you know, I got an, an, a one-time password to my Phone, and then I had to type the password so it never looks great. But then I did the whole thing. I said, okay, I understand, you know, it's a higher amount. I filled in the code, I pushed the button. And then the funny thing is that the next thing I got is a message that said, we're well, sorry, something went wrong. We couldn't approve your transaction. I was like, okay, maybe I mistyped the code. So I tried to do it again and I typed the code again and I get the same error. And after I got the same error twice, that's when I actually got another SMS from my issuer telling us, telling me we've identified some suspicious activity. So that's why we've decided to block your transaction. If it is you, please reply to this message with the number one and then try the transaction again. So I did the whole thing and then it, it was completed. But for me, this is really like a case where you say, really emphasize the difference between, you know, having a story-based and not having a story-based approach. Because if you were just looking and saying, okay, what items did I buy? What is the amount, et cetera? It's very clear why they, it triggered all of those things on their end. But then on the other end, if you looked closer and you say, okay, what are the items? What is the time? What has, have I bought previously? Around this transaction, actually, it all makes a perfect story, which makes a lot of sense. So that would be the story-based approach. And then what we were able to do, and this is what I think really creates this very, very powerful tool, is also take the story-based approach and also combine it with more of the traditional, let's say, statistical approach, if you wish. And the beauty is that the statistical approach is really great at giving you the big picture. And then the story-based approach is very good at giving you the details. So you're able to approach problem from both ends. And by combining those two methodologies, we're able to get to a very, both you know, a high level of coverage and also a high level of accuracy.
0: That's something that I have really enjoyed about working with you and having some conversations around newer fraud tactics that maybe I've learned that I want to make sure that you you know, know for the technology, et cetera, or vice versa as well. I've learned a lot from you too, is the way you think about things, saying, you know, unique approach is just so, that pretty much sums up your approach to fraud is it's a unique way of looking at it. And I think it's probably from your technology background, from a product management piece, as well as, you know, Noam Nevea, who you mentioned, who was one of the founders of Fraud Sciences. I think the combination of you two together is lightning in a bottle. And I (laughs) <laughs> I, I really geeked out when I got to be on a pretty long Zoom call with you guys working through the challenges of refund fraud and the way the questions you ask and the way you think about solving it is really admirable to me because I yeah, you know, I, I think we all bring different mm-hmm pieces of the fraud prevention puzzle, and I always admire people that have things that I don't necessarily, I don't have a product management background, so um, I'm not thinking about it from a product perspective. But the story-based approach versus the statistical approach is such a good way of talking about it. And you're also so good at boiling things down in an easy to understandable way, which I always think is the true sign of a genius. Uh, The people who really know, and I'm not saying that to butter you up. (laughs) You're so (laughs) humble too, but no, I'm not saying that to butter you up just more. I, uh, I think Einstein has a quote around that. And that's actually something I admire. I work towards as well is, you know, I, I aspire to be someone who can, take complex concepts and, and boil them down simply. And I think that is a sign of someone who knows their stuff. So, but I really, I've learned a lot from that approach. And I think something else you highlight is how important it is for us to try to look for the good orders first. I think it's way too common in fraud prevention to want to have to assume orders are bad and have them convince you that they're good versus assuming that all orders are good and having them convince you that you're bad, they're they're bad. And I think that's um a challenge within technology as a whole, especially as we're moving more towards automated decisions as well as people too, right? Like it, yeah. when you're at that detailed line, it's and I mean it's easy to do when you're in fraud. You mm-hmm. kind of forget sometimes that you're looking at 1% or 3% of the yeah. sales and that there's a whole giant amount that are all very good and fine. So I really have a- admired all of that. This is a good segue because you, you went from being at a very well-respected leader in the risk management space and as a practitioner, as someone solving those problems on behalf of, you know, PayPal. And it obviously benefited other companies, but really, you know, you're working for PayPal. And now you are a co-founder of an innovative fraud technology company, Identic. How did that happen?
1: So I've always been an entrepreneur at heart. Mm -hmm. So you know, you you could almost ask how how did I end up working for for a large corporation? Because <laughs> that's more out of your comfort zone. <laughs> to to be honest, because yeah. you know, be, pro- both you know, prior to working for PayPal and and also afterwards, I've always been part of you know the you know the startup industry. You know, being part of very early stage startups or funding my own companies, etc. So that's something that you know, I always loved and I always, you know, liked the, you know, the the amazing ability of very small companies to make huge changes in the market. And to some extent, it's because of, you know, people bringing new perspective, having, you know, great motivation, but also in many cases, just not being bound by by having, you know, a, a huge operation that you need to support and you know, I always, you know, one of the things that I've learned is always like, you know, you you do gain, I did gain a lot of appreciations for large companies. And, you know, it's easy to say it's hard to make changes in large companies. But actually, when you see and you understand how much responsibility you have, it's actually very, very well understood that you really need to make sure that you're doing things right. Right. But, but going to your question, so... You know, after leaving PayPal, I really started to think about, you know, what may be some of the problems that that I might be able to to solve and I might be able to bring uh, to the table based on my, you know, my experience and my, you know, and the skills and everything that I've seen, but also being very much aware to some of the things that were happening in the world because there were some very interesting trends, things like, you know, the Bitcoin becoming like a huge thing. And with that, the whole concept of distributed computing and you know the magic of what math and cryptography can do to sort of in very interesting and complex uh, ways that maybe not all of us understand, but that, you know, that they create something which is really, really valuable. I think at the same time, I think this is when privacy, GDPR, was also starting to come to, to the front and center from something that people were just talking about. And this was also at the period where we started to see more and more data breaches, unfortunately. And it became clear to me that there is like an always a seemingly contradicting forces between the ability and the need from a fraud management perspective to really understand the customer and to know as much as possible on the customer and of the customer in order to make good decisions. And on the other hand, the need to keep you know our own privacy and the privacy of our own customers and whether this is about ourselves or the customers who use the services, if we're part of a large company that manages risk. And you know, reading through GDPR and seeing that there's actually you know, GDPR has like all those things like you know, you're not allowed to do this, you're not allowed to do that, you're not allowed to do this, unless you get explicit consent and unless you get this. And then there's like those except if you're you know sharing data and using private data for several things, and of course fraud fraud and and, and loss prevention and risk management are one of the things that you're allowed to do. And that really got me thinking about saying, "You know what there's like there's obviously a need for a balance. we need to be able to manage fraud, uh, and we want to be able to protect consumer privacy, so it's very clear why the regulator chose to do what 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 they did, but then I asked them, "Is there a better way? Could you actually eat the cake and have it too and to that extent, I think you know, I'm happy to say that this is exactly what Identic was able to do.
0: Absolutely. And I'm really excited for you to get to talk more about that. I was lucky enough to get to meet you and really the senior uh, leadership team and learn about Identic. When you first started, it was actually two years ago this month. So June of Mm -hmm. 2019, And Oh, has so much happened in the world. When I got to go to Tel Aviv, I got to meet the core leadership team and just really was impressed with you guys. I mean, I, I was definitely guarded at first because I get a lot of demonstrations from startups that are all claiming to be different, all claiming to be unique. All claiming to have solved the, you know, the hardest problems that we have in fraud technology and, uh, you know, like a merchant, uh, like a lot of enterprise merchants that get very similar pitches, I I kind of become jaded and a lot of companies, you know, especially in startups will use buzzwords or, you know, they, they just don't really know what they're talking about. And the way I process things is by asking a lot of questions. And so I just kept asking questions and you and Shmuli and Shoshana were so good about, Really explaining it and going deeper, and I realized after you know asking several questions, I was like, "Wow, this actually isn 't bullshit like this is actually <laughs> really legitimate, and this is what we have all in fraud prevention wanted for years and years and years, but there are so many hurdles, right? So just to give context for everyone, you know, one of the things that was always asked, especially when I was at the trade association and working with so many merchants was, man, if I could just get their negative list and their negative list and their negative list, or you know, obviously we knew the positive list were probably off the table because that would then be everyone's good customer data. That would really that would solve all my problems, right? That would make things so much easier. But the biggest challenges were always you know privacy and uh, security, as well as you know who's going to own the data, who's going to you know just so many things when we'd actually start talking about it. As well as, you know, the consortiums came around about 10, 12 years ago, and that was a great thing and really helpful to the companies that used each core fraud solution. But there are some that are tied to, you know, one core fraud solution over here, but their competitors in the space are at a different one. But also, you know, it's as you put it so brilliantly. A lot of times in a consortium, it's opinions versus fact. And that's not to say that a consortium can't still really be helpful in addition to the Identic network, but I'm probably getting a little bit ahead of myself because I just get so excited talking about this. And I think anyone who's <laughs> listened to my podcast knows that I do not plug providers or vendors, but this is something you guys are more to me, more than just a provider. You're a technology and you're a network and you're facilitating this, but actually, the real product and the network are the merchants and the enterprise merchants that you're working Absolutely. with. And so it's a little bit different to me than just saying, hey, go, go. and also with everything down to the way that, you know, compensation happens. It's, it's a group thing and, and, you know, it's everybody's benefiting a little bit. So, like I said, I know I'm getting ahead of myself, but I would love for you to share in your words and describe kind of what you've all created over the last two years and, you know, build off of the vagueness that
1: i just provided i guess no actually that was that was very very good i think very very good setup and explanation of what we've been building in the past two years and you know if, if i had to put it first you know in in one sentence i would say you know we've been able to build the first private identity validation network And every word in this sentence is very important, you know. And what this means is that we actually allow, and I think you said it well, we actually allow companies to help each other. And I think this is in my mind, and I think, you know, really one of the things that I love about, you know, the world of, you know, risk and fraud management is the sense of community. Because, and this is really amazing, because at the end of the day, you know you meet people and you know people who work for different companies, many times companies who are you know competing with each other on the you know on the market. But when you get to fraud management, everyone realized that there is a common enemy, and that the only way that you know we could be successful as fraud managers is by collaborating and working together. This is why. You know, the things like, you know, the forums and, you know, and, and the conferences and CNP and you know, and, and the MYC and all of those. It's really about the community. And to that extent, we're, you know, at the DENTIC, we want to allow that uh, collaboration to go to the next level. And what we have realized, and, and this is sort of, again, you know, the, the way we're sort of look, looking at things we realize that there's a really interesting gap and that, that this, this gap is creating a huge opportunity for process. And the gap is between what the internet knows about us as a whole versus what every individual online merchant may know or may not know about me. And if we think about it, you know, especially today and after us spending, you know, in quarantine for, you know, months months over months, basically we live online, you know, from the moment we open our eyes to the moment we go to sleep. And then, you know, also recording this podcast, you know, through a virtual conferencing software. So we are using a ton of services all the time whether it's for you know for work, for entertainment, for you know, for travel, if we ever get to travel again, you know, buying stuff, online stuff, et cetera. So on one hand, if you think about it, we leave our traces everywhere. And the internet knows us very, very well. And not only that the internet knows us well, actually today the internet gets to know us at a very, very young age. So I think Probably, you know, I don't know what age kids get on the internet today, but probably well before they, I know, maybe three, four years old. And by the time they get the, new, the first smartphone, they also have like already an email and a phone number. And to many extents, those, those digital footprints are likely to go with you through your life, right? You know, I don't see myself changing my email address ever and banning me relocating to a different country, I'm not going to change my phone number. So there are a lot of things that are really part of our identity and our extensions of our identity into the online world. And those things are, you know, we leave our traces, as I said, on the internet all the time. On the other hand, and this is really the huge contrast, if on the other hand, a fraudster will get my private information and say go to a website or to a service that i've never used before they can very easily claim to be me they can provide my name they can provide my address probably even if you ask them what is the name of my second cousin twice removed they probably know the answers i don't know the answer to that question but they do so they're able to impersonate me very, very well. And this is really the contrast that we notice. We say, how come that on one hand, the internet knows about us so much, and on the other hand, when you look at the individual merchants, they know about us so, so little. And this is exactly what we wanted to help, help merchants solve and help fraud managers resolve. Because we realized that when the fraudsters themselves, so sort of trying to look for the fraudsters, And you talked about negative lists. And and of course, they bring a lot of value. But the the problem with negative lists is that fraudsters are getting better and better of getting off the negative list. So it's becoming increasingly easy for them to get a clean device or a clean IP or a clean email or a clean phone for that matter. So it's becoming increasingly easy for the fraudsters to look like a regular person which has no ties to any negative activity and then the question becomes so if I don't know Uri and someone claims to be Uri and opens an account how do I tell whether it's really him or someone else Mm -hmm. and the realization is what that there's a very easy way and this is like if you only could ask someone else that might know me and you know we sort of we 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 made a joke someone internally that this is almost like going back to you know old world value mm-hmm. when you used to meet someone and you didn't know them and how would you know whether you trust them or not so you always look for maybe there's a person that can vouch for them and say oh this is my cousin he's a real guy you should trust him hey. okay, right so if you know him and i trust you and you trust them then we're golden and this is how trust used to work, right? Mm. It used to work in a transitive way, and only you know when we become very modernized or for something, it's like you know everyone is like uh, the, an individual. So we're trying to bring this sense of community back. And really the idea behind identity, and sorry for the very long story, but really trying to bring everything together now. So the idea behind identity is say, can we close the gap? Because this gap of knowledge between what the internet knows about us as a whole, versus what an individual merchant may know about it. This is exactly what the fraudsters are taking advantage of. Being able to say, yes, well, we can, get the information about Uri from here and then we can pretend to be Uri there. And like since the merchant cannot connect the dots, they there's no way for them uh to know one one from another. And we're saying let us help the merchants connect the dots. Let us help help the merchants really have this ability to say, hey guys, I've seen this new customer. He claims to be Uri. I don't know whether it's him or not. Do you know Uri? Can you confirm? that he is a real person? Can you confirm that he is whom he claims to be? Mm -hmm. And because there's so many services that I use and that know me, that's a very easy question for them to answer. Now, of course, the kink in this whole, you know, great story is that you say, well, that sounds great, but do you really expect me to, you know, then send my customer data to other merchants on the internet? And, you know, No one is going to let me do it. And of course, even if they did let me do it, I won't do it because, you know, business and competitive reasons. And that's where really the technology comes into play. And we have developed this ability to be able to get proofs and to get answers to this type of question, which are mathematically sound, but at the same time being able to do that without exposing any private information Whatsoever, and not only that, we're not exposing the private information whatsoever. We're actually providing what we call our four p- pillars of privacy. So, you know, no one know which you know when 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 a company wants to ask about a certain person. So, no one knows which company is asking the question. No one knows who is the person they're asking the question about. When other companies in the network, other members of the network may help them they remain anonymous so no one knows you know who are the other members that have helped them and there's actually even a layer that even the people that help they don't even know if they've helped or not so i know it's all crazy but this is what you know technology and math allows us to do and this is you know what we're able to do so if bringing that to a summary we're just provided the platform to allow companies to help each other.
0: And anyone that knows me knows that is exactly why I wanted to work with you and exactly why I <laughs> broke my no working with vendors rule in my consultancy two years ago to work with you guys because it is all about collaboration. And at the end of the day, it is about the merchants. There's no single data Repository. There's no place where this data is being stored. No data is actually leaving a merchants network. It sounds like sci-fi, but mm-hmm. to your point, it's math and it's things that are super a lot more ta- like complex for me to understand. But I can understand them at a more simple level. And just to kind of you know reiterate, for so long merchants have been using publicly available data to verify people's identities. And there are still some great use cases for that and that still um, can happen. But the problem is a lot of fraudsters are also able to get access to this especially in the U S because there is just so much publicly available information, especially with data breaches. I mean, the Equifax data breach gave everybody, you know, all the information, you know, every address I've ever lived at for the last, you know, 20 years, Uh, not to mention everything else. So it does make it so much harder as a merchant to say, okay, this is a new customer or this also can apply to account takeovers as well. You know, this is a new device or whatever. I've never seen this person before, but I bet, the big, the other biggest companies in the world have, I bet they have, you know, rideshare app in their wallet, in their, you know, phone. I bet they, you know, all use certain large shopping websites, you know, music, listening, all the things, right? So essentially Identic has provided this network in a very automated fashion to say, okay, I have this new customer, who else has seen this new customer? And it's not just about, you know, and you're not actually getting back this is the person's address this is the person's email you're getting back that yes or no does it match or not match to what you provided and then the series of it's the combinations and the series of time also that i think provides so much more richness of value because just taking like email verification for example when the email um, domains stop saying when you know allowing people to publicly look and see Oh, this email address was opened yesterday right. versus an email that was opened five years ago. There's two different sets of risk there. It then became really the only thing we had was, well, when has this email address last been seen? and that's really important information, but last to be seen by who, right? Like we don't know. We're trusting an entity to tell us, and we're also you know last seen. To what? You know, and like, we we don't know any of that. We don't really know the data sources that those companies are getting Mm -hmm. them from. A lot of them are, you know, marketing, etc. And a lot of them are great. I don't want anyone to think I'm disparaging it. I think it's, you know, there are good uses to the existing situations but this is just another way to help merchants work together versus going to one source and trusting that one source that all of their data sources were accurate but in this case you can go out to and you guys have done such an amazing job and i'm very grateful to have gotten to help with this a little bit you're working with some of the biggest companies internationally in the world who have millions i mean hundreds of millions in some cases Data sets, and you're able to know okay, well, I don't know exactly which company is saying this, but I know all these companies have been very heavily vetted. And I'm actually getting this essentially from their customer account information that they've had this same email address and phone number and name attached to each other for the last two years in this database. And you know that the customer is going to give that company and the companies within this network the accurate information because they want their products to ship to their house. They want, you know, their music library to continue to be stored. And, you know, you're even going to the credit card number. So I'm geeking out. I don't think anyone who's listened to this podcast has ever heard me get so excited about technology before, because I really do try hard to be, you know, agnostic to a certain extent, but There's also another reason why I can be is because you guys are new technology you're not just a new company it's not just a vendor it's the technology and I think anyone who has seen a demo of this and i I can speak to this because I've you know gotten to introduce several of the large companies that you're working with to you guys that they Sometimes a couple of days will go by and they're like, oh, my gosh, I thought about how we could use this to validate vendors with other people. I thought about how we can use this da, 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 da. and like so many use cases. And I think one of the biggest challenges for you guys has been trying to put your blinders on to use cases because it. and Absolutely. I'm guilty of bringing a few use cases to you guys and yeah. being like, can you solve this? Can you solve that? But it's taking it one, you know, one step at a time.
1: Yeah. This is this is really, I think, part of what's exciting. Yeah. about. Yeah you know, the technology we've been able to develop is, and and really through working with, you know, with our partners and, you know, with those companies that you've mentioned, this is where we learn every day about, you know, more and more use cases, more things that we are able to help merchants solve based on that core capability. And of course, our responsibility is to stay laser focused on those, you know, key use cases and not get tempted too much but at the at the the same time we always keep an ear to what the market needs and what the merchant needs and if there's a you know a specific you know challenging area that we can help with we're very very happy to you know to put our heads together with you know with the merchant with the online service managers and really think together and you know on that end You know, we don't think we have all the answers. And I think in more than one occasion, you know, we got questions from, you know, from partners about, oh, can you solve this problem? Or how do you solve this problem? And we're, you know, we're trying to be very honest about, you know, what we know and what we don't know. And, you know, when we don't know, we tell merchants, look, this is something that we can, most definitely we can see how we might be able to solve it. But in order for us to solve it, You need to work with us and you need to tell us, you know, how do you look at this problem? What are you doing today? And sometimes because we're talking about a collaboration, it may require bringing several people from the industry, you know, to think together with us about, okay, how do we want to tackle it together? Because, you know, to an extent, we're, we're a facilitator and we believe in giving back to the community and then bringing together with the community of the merchants the different solutions. I do want to touch one more point that you have mentioned about, you know, some of the central databases that, of course, they have a lot of value, and they've been bringing a lot of value for many, many years, but then, you know, of course, the data breaches. But one other aspect that, again, initially, we did not realize that, but we are finding that as we work with, you know, more and more companies, is also the fact that there's, Something very egalitarian about the, our solution, it to an extent, because when you think about many of those, you know, data data sources that you may be able to look look and you know find information about people, in many cases, not everyone even gets a chance to be on those databases. You know, you need to have you. Sometimes it's it's voter registration registration, so you need to vote or be allowed to vote is sometimes it's credit based. So you need to be able to to be eligible or to actually have a credit card. But if you think about so many people, you know, in the U.S. and in other countries who may not vote, may may be underbanked or non-banked at all. So they are to many extents, they're sort of off the grid. And many of those people may not have a passport. They may not have a driver's license. So when you think about those people having to engage with many of the online services, in many, many cases, they might have a lot of challenges, even just getting through some of those things that as fraud managers and as companies, we sort of say, okay, what's the problem? We're just going to give that challenge or ask them to do this, or we're just going to look for them in that source or that other source and not realize that the many people are just being left out. But at the same time, if you think about, you know, some of those services, and you have mentioned whether it's about ride sharing, whether it's about entertainment, whether it's about dating apps, whether it's about, you know, shopping online, or then these are sort of like the great equalizers from that perspective, because everyone is being able to use them, and you know, we're not just limiting ourselves to saying, okay. It has to be like a paid application in order for you to be, you know, to be counted as someone that that is known. Those could be you know, free application and free services. But again, if you have established yourself as a user and you have been using them in a consistent way, you know, for many, many years, you will be building the trust of the network. So you will be able to get an easier experience when you join other services. So this is just something that you know, we just realized recently about how you know the the nature of the network also make it something that also contributes to to equality and to mm. you know opening new new opportunities for people that those opportunities might have been closed to before.
0: Such a good point because especially for people underbanked or that maybe aren't in these public data sources, you know, where we're using to verify are they a real person or not, a lot of them are in that gray area. A lot of them look risky. They look like fraud because they can't be found in those databases, but maybe they've already, you know, maybe they've had these combinations of their, you know, their identity used throughout the internet, but they don't have a credit report or, you know, minors, you you talk about kids. I know that, you know, one of the use cases you've recently solved for is age verification. I mean, that's huge, right? There's a whole subset of consumers that are under the age of 18, that in the U S they won't have a credit report, so they won't have that information. So I'm so glad that you, you know, pointed that out. And there's so many different factors that we can talk about in this. And, uh, you know, I would just encourage anyone who's thinking, yeah, but do they do this or yeah, can they get around that? Like I guarantee you, Uri has heard these and has an excellent answer for them because, in case you guys can't tell this man thinks through everything. And I love that about him. And if he doesn't, he's got an incredible team. I mean, the team at Identic is just, I, this, you guys really walk the walk. And I have found like in the last two years, I've been blown away by how, you know, cause I was, I've worked with vendors over the years and a lot of them will, you know, say like we care about privacy or whatever, but then they're, Very quick and and understandably so. And and sometimes it's a big part of business where, you know, if they sponsor something, they may get a list of the attendees uh, that they can then reach out to or add to their email list. And this is just one small example of how you guys walk the walk. You guys have actually gone to those organizations and say, we don't want the list. We don't. We're all about privacy here. We don't want the list. If people are interested in talking to us, we want them to reach out to us directly. That's very unusual, <laughs> but it's, I think it comes from a place that you guys really, you, you aren't just saying you care about collaboration and you care about privacy and you care about these, you know, ethereal things you actually do. And I've gotten to, you know, work with you all and get to know you on a, you know, personal as well as professional level and every way, just I've never worked with a client that has more ethics and integrity and that's what makes it so makes me love working with you. And it makes it so easy to, you know, introduce, it's like introducing friends to each other. So yeah. And then on top of that, your product works very, very well. And the companies that are, you know, using you are big fans and big advocates. And like I said, all, I would venture to say almost all of them are, very well-known names but that's another part of walking the walk is that you guys keep a lot of those companies you know private we obviously don't want you know fraudsters to know okay maybe I have to build an idea you know whatever it's going to take years for them to be able to circumvent your system and the complexity you've created but you know for lots of reasons and so that's also made it harder because a lot of vendors get you know big quickly by saying oh we have this one marquee brand or we have these two marquee brands I would venture you guys have like. 20, 30, 40 marquee brands, but you don't brag about them because you value their privacy. So it's just yeah, I I am fangirling out and it, this is very rare for me, but it's because I really do <laughs> genuinely, you know, love the product as well as the people at identic. And I can, I can just see your co-founder and CEO Itai running on the beach of Tel Aviv because I know he listens to the podcast when he does that and he's probably beaming with pride as he should because he's you both have created just such a great team. Speaking of use cases what are some current use cases that your clients have brought to you that, that you guys have been able to offer a unique solution to?
1: So, so I, I, and I think you already mentioned one of them and you have mentioned you know the 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 challenge around age verification mm-hmm. something that you know really came from the market. But and that's something that we're very happy to support. And this is really, you know, this is really a, a tough one because there's like always the question of saying, okay, you know, what what evidence are you using in order to determine the age? But there's also a question, and this is also what we're always trying to keep an eye for, is also to figure out what is it that our partners are trying to achieve? because in many cases, there may be different reasons why you might want to you know to validate but to verify one thing or another. I think one other thing that we have been you know seeing a lot is thinks it is uh, a lot of things that has to do with abuse, and there's really a whole you know very very large domain of different types of abuse and the interesting thing about those you know this type of of behavior is that for many organizations that behavior actually slips be you know below the radar mm-hmm. because in many cases it does not translate into a chargeback and you know so, so many of us and so many of the you know fraud and risk organization have you know grown to you know, measured level of success and how well they're doing their job, but, you know, chargeback percent and, you know, and decline rates and just looking at those sort of very transaction-oriented features. And and to be honest, companies have been getting, you know, quite good at managing that point in the user interaction. Yeah. And I think that might be also one of the reasons that fraudsters are also looking for other And we're seeing, you know, a lot of abuse both, you know, at the very beginning of the funnel and also very, very late of the funnel. So one of the things that we're hearing about repeatedly has to do with promotion abuse. And you would be, you know, we were shocked uh, by how prevalent this is Mm -hmm. and almost just from the huge amounts of money the companies are Really, you know, losing through those channels, and the interesting thing is that many of them don't even don't even track those numbers. So, you know, just take as an example and think about, you know, potentially your your marketing team. I know creating some promotion where you may be saying, you know, what new user gets I don't know twenty dollars off purchases over hundred dollars. So you would think that you know there's a marketing budget, and you know at the end of the you know, the marketing campaign, you can go and look and say, OK, how much, you know, how many new accounts did we get and how many new orders and what is the lift? And many, you know, many, you know, and from the fraud prevention, of course, you're only being asked, just don't, don't get in the way of those new users mm-hmm. because, oh, these are new users. so Let's make sure that we're not giving them a bad user experience. So you may actually be asked during that campaign period to actually maybe even be a little bit more loose in your controls. But in many cases, you will not see a chargeback and everyone will feel quite good about saying, oh, this campaign brought so many new users. But if you look you know, a couple of months later mm-hmm. and you ask yourself, okay, are they really new users or did those accounts become dormant? One, you know, you just made one transaction, got the promotion and went away. And actually when companies are starting to look at this area, many of them realize that many, many of those accounts Are actually fake accounts. Uh, And those accounts might be existing users who are just looking to say, I can get $20 off. Why not? Mm -hmm. It's a good idea. But more interesting, there are actually also a lot of professional fraudsters that or resellers that may be saying, Oh, that's a great deal. I can get the product $20 off. I can then sell it maybe $10 off, or maybe keep it until the promotion is over, send it at the full price. And that's free twenty dollars. Mm-hmm. And when you analyze the data, in many cases you realize that these are huge amounts of money that go. I think another example, by the way, and I not know if anyone you know listening to the podcast has been trying, let's say, to to get a new PS5. <laughs> and you know, in the last six months or something like that. <laughs> So again, just think about it. Yes, or or if, but the same thing happens. I think with tickets, right? Mm-hmm. So you know, there's nothing new about you know the whole scalping behavior.
0: You know, sneakers are also community. very big in that in that area too. Sneakers, exactly. Like ele- new electronics and ticketing, it's very similar. There's a lot of overlaps in good customer behavior and bad customer behavior, like exactly. resellers. So, yeah,
1: yeah. So you have you know a highly desirable item with limited inventory Mm -hmm. Uh, and this is like a golden opportunity because they say if you can get your hands you know through automation through other means on a huge chunk of the inventory there's a lot of money to be made and so we're seeing the same behavior and once again you know companies are trying to use different type different solutions in order to prevent this from happening but one of the things that at the end of the day if you sort of take a step back and say okay if at the end of the day there is you know one person that is able to buy twenty items, where your policy says one item per customer, then basically he's been able to break the system. Mm-hmm. He's been able to pretend to be twenty different customers, and you're unable to say to know that this is no no no. This is one real person and nineteen fake identities. So. You know, so this has been really one area that we've been seeing starting to get a lot of attention. You know, you mentioned some of the some of the verticals where this is getting a lot of traction. Mm-hmm. And I think everywhere where because this is an area, as I said, this is like no one is counting this money, it's out of marketing budget, and marketing is happy to report how many new customers they got and no one sort of bothers to look later on. Uh, what happened so those things just may get unnoticed but when companies start looking at the numbers they figure out that there's a lot of money that leaks out of the organization Mm -hmm. and just as much by the way and you know there's a lot of things that has to do with refund abuse and you know returns and you know at the very other end of the of the funnel and you know both of these are areas that we're you know looking at closely with you know with our member partners of the network in order to help them figure out how those activities could be resolved with our based on our platform on top of you know just your usual you
0: know identity verification transaction verification use cases age verifications etc right and i think you know kind of taking this full circle just like how you know you learned the importance at paypal of looking for verifying good orders before, you know, instead of looking for bad orders, that's also a big focus of the Identic Network is really just narrowing it down so that you can provide the merchants a much smaller list of, hmm, these don't have identities that match up with what you're provided with everyone else in the network with all these different companies. Maybe you should take a little bit closer look at that. Something else that I thought of as you were talking about the promo code abuse is, you know, I run into this all the time with companies just thinking that fraud equals chargebacks. But because of that, that's created a lot of blind spots. And to your point, it's we've gotten good at preventing chargebacks more or less, but there's all these other pieces of uh, the life cycle in e-commerce that they're starting to take advantage of. And a lot of companies think, ah, like a $20 promo, no big deal. But now you're also, that goes to your customer acquisition costs and all of that. But then on top of that, I was thinking about it and all this promo code abuse, you know, leads to dormant accounts. Well, who's to say that a fraudster isn't going to then resell those dormant accounts for their legacy value, and start a re- account takeover, or you know, using them to make a fraudulent purchase? And because there's a previous good order in the system, you know, so there's that's another thing that just gets me so excited about this. Is you guys have really been so good at you know listening to your users and then coming up with really creative solutions. I mean, I um, kind of sent you an email in a panic last summer saying, oh my gosh, I think I've, I've like identified this brand new type of fraud and, you know, refund fraud. And I've talked about it on this podcast before. And I work with a large group of retailers biweekly on this problem still. And, you know, that kind of collaboration and talking with each other and anecdotal is so important, but then there's this other piece of data, right? Like they know that the same people are, stealing essentially from this company to that company, to that company in refund abuse, but because their systems aren't you know, together and because they don't want to mark them as fraud because that would, it's very different than credit card fraud. They're all just kind of like, ah, but they can't send out a list saying, okay, these are all the people that committed refund fraud on our, our site. So right. it's been a great problem to be able to work with you guys to help solving. So gosh, I still have so many questions for you, but we're running out of time. This does not surprise you one bit. I think the last question I'd like to just ask is what has been the biggest highlight or most gratifying part of this journey for you so far with Identic? You know, just a simple little question. (laughs) We can narrow it down.
1: Uh, I think the most gratifying thing for me is really to see the support we get from the network members. Mm. We really see all of our network members as true partners and it's interesting that, you know, many of them have shared with us, you know, that, you know, they had, you know, similar ideas or similar visions about, you know, building such a network of collaboration. And we actually had people show us like, you know, pictures of, you know, on their phone of like old whiteboards and stuff like that, that they were trying. But I have several never, of those I could have showed you. <laughs> they never could figure out how to make it happen. Yeah. And then when they see what we're able to do and for those people, and I think really it's mostly for people that have been around, you know, in the mm-hmm. in the fraud area for, you know, a while and have been really thinking about it. And then I think after a certain period of time, you realize that without collaboration, there's no way that you're going to solve mm-hmm. this problem. And I think for those people, it really clicks. Mm-hmm. And they become such huge supporters of what we're doing and this is what really you know really is so gratifying you know to get the 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 support and really in a very active ways i can say you know many of them you know want us to succeed they see our success as their success yeah and actively you know introduce us to their own friends in other companies and say look you know you have to work with the, you know, with those guys that identity you know, with,
0: you know. Part of where... it's because they want access to their data. I mean, not actual access, but, you know, they want to be able to verify their customers against their data. Of course. But I, that's I'm exactly sure that's why. No, no, but I actually think that that's a great thing. I I witnessed that, like, hey, I want, we have similar customers, even though, like, you know, maybe we are aren't connected, but, like, you know, you just think yeah. about all the different pieces of that go into somebody, a uh, consumer making a trip, you know, an airline, a ride share company, exactly. a yep. hotel, et cetera. Like, Hey, we probably have the same people. I want your day. Go talk to Identic. I've seen it. And so that's why I bring it up. Like it's, it's, it's twofold. Right. And I think also
1: absolutely,
0: we as practitioners within the the space don't really see you guys as a vendor because you are a partner, because you're creating this network and because you're even doing, you know, revenue shares on the, you know, on the um verification piece and all of that, which can be discussed, you know, offline, but with anyone that's interested. But, you know, you don't I don't I see people have so much less of a guard with you guys. And you've been hosting a lot of great, you know, merchant and forums and collaboration forums over Zoom, you know, for your members as well as potential members. And it's just it's I have to echo that, that as somebody who's been a champion and a fan of you guys since almost the beginning, it's been really cool for me to see this hypothesis where I was like, this is exactly what we wanted. I hope that everyone sees it. I, I, and gosh, I hope they can really do it and all that. All the way to now, people that are actively using the network, they're your biggest fans. Um, just one quick story. I don't even think I've told any of you guys this, but when we when you hosted your first member forum... There was someone on there that I'd known for quite a while, was working, you know, had worked for a very, very large company. And, you know, just recently moved to another one, but still very big. And she private messaged me on Zoom and I was like, oh, and she said, I didn't know you knew, you know, you were working with them. And I'm like, yeah. And she said, this is exactly what we've been asking for for years, <laughs> but I didn't think it would ever come true because, and I'm like, I... I know I'm exactly with you. That's why I'm here. It was just, it was really funny because it was like, this is what, and a lot of people have been asking me that for years because I created so many, you know, collaboration groups within their verticals, et cetera. And they're like, okay, great. So it's great that I can call and say, hey, do you have this general problem? But I want to know, Like, do they see these people? Do these people like I want the data part. So with that, Uri, I have taken up more time of yours than I intended, but I really appreciate it. And I know it's getting late in Tel Aviv, but. Thank you so much, and I'm going to include how to get a hold of you and you know reach out to you on LinkedIn and the team if anyone has any questions. I'm also more than willing to you know, make introductions and thank you. Yeah, so thank you so much for creating this. I am really excited to see how this changes the fraud light landscape and continues to change it. And we will maybe we'll touch base with you down the road and see how it's going.
1: Absolutely, thank you so much, Chris. It's been an absolute pleasure. You know being being a guest on your podcast and and working with you for you know those last few years so i am you know really excited about that really excited about collaborating you know with you and with the rest of the you know community so really thank you for giving me the opportunity here and you know hopefully maybe we have another another session sometime in the future because really time flew
0: yeah absolutely well time flies when we're nerding out right (laughs) well thanks so much
1: thank you bye-bye